Cyber hardening is the process of securing a system by reducing its vulnerabilities. In general, cyber professionals who harden systems try to reduce attack surface by reducing the functions and features of a system to the essentials. Cyber hardening has a long history in the information technology industry, but represents a new frontier in operational technology. In this episode, special guest Joe Saunders discussed how denial of service, buffer overflow, memory corruption, and zero-day attacks affect critical industrial, commercial, medical, military, and consumer targets, and how we as a cybersecurity community can rise to the challenge of defending these critical systems. Joe Saunders is the founder and CEO of Run Safe Security, a pioneer of cyber hardening technology for embedded systems and devices and industrial control systems. Joe has had an over 25-year career consisting of many national security and cybersecurity roles across the public and private sectors. Prior to forming RunSafe, Joe has advised myriad companies, including Caprica Security, Sovereign Intelligence, Distill Networks, and Analyze Corp. Joe, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, um, I think we're long overdue uh, to, to have a discussion about some of the things that you work on at RunSafe. Um, I think, you know, on, on our podcast, we've talked a lot, unsurprisingly, about the data buses, the things that connect the devices that we see on a lot of operational technology. Um, and only in like a very oblique or ancillary way have we talked about what's actually going on on these devices, these sensors and actuators that are responsible for doing everything on, on OT. Um, I think maybe a critical starting point for the conversation is to zoom in on what makes these specific devices different from what we might see in IT, uh, like a cell phone, a laptop, a, a computer server, uh, and, and really like drill in on what is an embedded device. Well, it's a good question because it is fundamental, uh, obviously, to, you know, the kind of the security approaches you ultimately take and what and, and the kind of the purpose in which. Uh, these kinds of devices are built. But if you think of uh, industrial IoT or OT systems in general, oftentimes you're running on different uh, uh, operating systems. You're running software that, uh, you know, is not typically found in a web-based application or a web server itself. You will have potentially real-time operating systems. Uh, you'll have embedded software itself that might be the first code that goes on bare metal. And so you have fundamentally different kinds of architectures. Uh, and one of the challenges with that is these are purpose-built to do, you know, specific, you know, tasks ultimately. And they get embedded, if you will, not to overuse that term, but they get embedded into infrastructure to really make, you know, kind of fundamental things in our society operate. And so they're both critical and then they're sort of unique from a technological perspective uh, and, and as a result of that, they're fundamental for, you know, having good, resilient, secure approaches to protect them. That makes a lot of sense. Let's try like an example of an embedded device that we might find on, you know, an ICS system or a locomotive or, or, or take, take, you know, your, your preferred platform. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, a certain kind of system I, I like to talk about are sort of engine controllers and, and even controllers in general that help operate you know, infrastructure. But if you think of a of an automotive platform or even, you know, something that goes in the air, they have controllers that help, you know, uh, make the overall, you know, uh, vehicle, if you will, you know, operate in, in a good way. So that kind of controller, you know, is, you know, so there are manufacturers of these systems and they have, you know, it's both a hardware and kind of software, you know, platform uh, that does certain tasks to make, 
you know, the, the automotive platform operates. So you, you'll have different controllers, the engine controller itself, and you have, you know, different embedded software on a car. Uh, but aircraft is the same way. If you think of helicopters, you think of, you know, planes, you think of uh, drones, they all have various forms of controllers that go on there and they're fundamental to the operation of that platform. And they, they do certain tasks. So the engine controller is making sure that it's communicating with the rest of the platform itself and taking signal from elsewhere and, and helping it operate. So these are fundamental components of vehicles and, uh, you know, naturally, you know, they're secure. Um, the security of those are important. So when I think about a cell phone, um, flexibility is something that's designed into it from first principles. You know, you've got, um, certainly hardware, but there's an operating system that sets on that hardware and it's designed so that you can easily download an application that may do something that the designers of the iPhone like never thought of, uh, from first principles. Right. And so, so that's like kind of built into the way these general purpose computers are, are made. When I think about an engine control unit, I think like, well, how many things could it possibly do? You know, why don't manufacturers just design, you know, printed circuits that just do exactly what needs to get done? And, you know, what's the point of putting software on these things? Well, so, you know, there's, I guess, a couple different angles like that. And I think your example with, uh, you know, a cell phone is, is, is right because there's a lot of interoperability, you know, kind of uh, topics and, and issues that have to happen. And then you're downloading applications. Uh, but naturally, um, you know, these kinds of uh, systems are interacting with other components. Uh, and so there are standards in which they communicate and operate. And, and uh, you know, you know um, to the extent that that kind of software uh, can be attacked and modified, it be, creates a big risk in the overall architecture of the, the overall platform. So these are purpose-built. They have to operate with speed. Uh, and they often last a long time in that infrastructure in which they operate. And so um, they're not designed to have a lot of overhead, a lot of, you know, um, complexity. They're optimized for speed and the purpose that they, you know, operate. And, and oftentimes in these industries, then um, there's a lot of determinism that's required uh, to ensure that, uh, you know, when these systems operate, that they know exactly what is going to happen in every known state possible. Uh, and so, you know, with that in, in, you know, especially in transportation, as I'm sure, well, I know you, you guys at Shift 5 know, um, there's a lot of safety critical aspects that you have to be able to rely on, you know, uh, these platforms to operate. And you need to know that they're going to operate exactly as they say they do. So when you introduce a lot of the interoperability, um, then, you know, like with a mobile phone, you run the risk of having, you know, a, a lot of unintended events happen. And, you know, that would put, you know, safety critical systems in danger. And so the importance of the software then is really to, uh, you know, make sure that they are interoperable with other components within their infrastructure, as well as, you know, it take a lot of different inputs and make decisions. So it's really meant to speed up processing ultimately. Yeah. So, I mean, these, these things are just tasked these days with such complicated computations that like designing a hardware circuit to make that happen is, is not possible. Like we're just, we're demanding a lot of our OT these days. Right. So, okay. So we're stuck with software. Right. Um, and so, you know, we've seen, um, in hardware over the past really decade or two, this, this revolution in microcontrollers, right. Which are, 
uh, somewhere between like an integrated circuit and just like a, a computer, <laughs> you know, um, I think Arduino has really popularized this in the maker community. You know, the idea that you, you can design a little circuit board, um, that has, you know, all the traditional ICs in it, but there's this little brain in it, uh, that you can plug onto and you can upload new firmware. Um, and that's really something you think a lot about, right? Is that, is that blob <laughs> that gets, that gets put onto that, um, that, that PCB or that microcontroller or that engine control unit. So when we're building these, these pieces of firmware, which are, um, you know, they're fundamentally software, you're, you know, you're, you're not making printed circuits. You're actually making a malleable kind of stream of bits and bytes that makes the, makes the device tick. Um, well, <laughs> Because it's software, we've seen time and time again that software contains vulnerabilities. And, you know, we see in the news every day, there's a new patch that's out for, you know, stopping some sort of attack here or there. Um, and at RunSafe, you guys focus a lot on making sure that that, that firmware, that blob that lands on on a, on a control unit um, – is is not as robust against these sorts of uh, these sorts of things. So, give me a sense of like what are the kinds of vulnerabilities that uh, that firmware might might be vulnerable to. Yeah, so there's uh, a whole series of uh, you know exploits that target sort of the the memory angle of and memory corruption errors in general. And you know, of course, one of the challenges is getting uh, patches out into infrastructure can be hard to apply. And also, you know, another kind of challenge is that. Um, both the uh, known and unknown vulnerabilities are not always patched, and especially the unknown vulnerabilities that can, you know, kind of show their head down the road out in the field. And if you have trouble getting updates out to patch those, or you can't administer, and, and or your customers, you know, often don't want to touch the devices and, and apply an update, then you know the memory corruption errors, which uh, allow for, you know. Um, you know, taking control of that software, remote code execution and, and the like, or building a reliable uh, exploit to take advantage of a memory weakness in your code, um, you know, is something that can bring down your infrastructure in general. And so what at RunSafe, what we try to do is we randomize the, the functions where they load into memory so that those exploits, you know, kind of built in the lab can affect, you know, those instances out there. And so we make the memory side of this unique so that the exploits fail. Um, and so because it's hard to update um, or, or apply patches on a, on a timely basis, and because these systems uh, last so long out in the field, and, and oftentimes they're part of a high-value asset in general, having security built into that, that software that randomizes you know, and, and prevents the memory-based exploits that's where RunSafe kind of you know uh, intersects and, and creates value, um, but it's a combination of the inability to apply updates uh, and also the longevity of those controllers being out in the field that creates the opportunity for us to you know create um, you know the, the the protections that we do. Yeah, and it's I think it's so important what you guys do because um, we've seen you know on the IT side uh, on Windows machines or Linux or Mac machines, um, these kinds of protections actually get built in at the operating system level. So the assumption is, you know, when people write software, they're going to mess stuff up. And uh, the, the role of the operating system is to just be sort of like a, 
um, you know, a, a, a nurturing system that if, if one of these things gets, um, tries to get exploited, it makes it really hard for the attacker. So the operating system will do address space layout randomization, or they'll make the stack non-executable or some of these like techniques that keep the attacker from consu- uh, confusing data and code and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and what you're doing, which is super cool because there is no operating system <laughs> on most of these, on most of these systems is you're actually baking those security control measures into the firmware itself. Um, and that's, that's a kind of an interesting concept because of course, you've got to know a bit about the build system, right? So can you tell me a little bit about how, um, how you guys integrate into uh, the firmware build process and different options for what that looks yeah, like? Yeah, and you know, you raise a good point. Um, there, there really isn't an option for address space layout randomization in some of these embedded systems, obviously. Um, but even in those IT systems, uh, RunSafe you know, uh, works over and beyond what uh, ASLR can can ultimately offer, uh, but to your point, uh, you know, how do you insert into the build process? Um, and so, you know, naturally, there's many different kind of build systems and a lot of different deployment systems. In fact, in the embedded space, one of the interesting movements is built around, you know, embedded Linux, uh, just to kind of shift away from, you know, maybe the controllers for a second. But there's also a movement around Yocto uh, to help you know, with the build process overall. And the whole idea is to create highly reproducible builds uh, so that you can, you know, uh, you know, as you build your, your applications and in, in your embedded Linux, you know, devices, if you will, um, you know, inserting into that build process in a predictable way where you can add security in uh, is in fact what we do. So in that kind of example, in the Yocto example, we're just another layer within the Yocto recipe to help, uh, you know, add in our randomization technique uh, and do, and so the benefit, so we have, you know, companies that are building firmware uh, using um, an SDK that's built around Yocto. And so we're just, you know, we're, we're a process within that build process in general. We are a layer within the Yocto recipes. And every time you commit new code or you're ready to build, uh, then you just kind of run the process and we're a step as part of that overall, you know, build system. Uh, more generally in Linux-based systems or, or Windows environments and the like, um, we often are complementary to the uh, compiler itself. And so we end up becoming a step just after a compilation before linking occurs. We insert in there with some, with, with some stub code that does some analysis on, you know, uh, that intermediary assembly uh, you know, code that gets uh, that comes out of the, the compiler, um, and we're able to collect a lot of metadata about that, so that um, when we offer a very lightweight late library, it has the intelligence based on all that metadata we collect to randomize when that software loads into memory, randomize where those functions get loaded. So, you know, in that regard, just kind of shifting gears a little bit to kind of GCC and LLVM kind of compilation processes. We're just a stub code that gets inserted so to enable our metadata analysis that creates a purpose-built library for that code so that at, at load time, the randomization completes and you have a unique instance of that software where the functions are loaded into a unique location overall. And that, you know, again, if I go back to kind of an example, you know, the great promise of software in all these cases is that, uh, you know, from device to device or instance to instance, 
uh, all software should behave the exact same way. With the exact same inputs, you should get the exact same outputs. Um, the problem is that that determinism and that predictability also works in favor of the attacker who really just needs to, kind of your point, figure out you know, where uh, you know, kind of a weakness is or where a vulnerability is in that code. Uh, and so then they, that's what gives them the ability to build reliable exploits um, you know, on known problems in, in memory. And so the, with RunSafe then applied or with these kinds of techniques applied, then you know the attacker can't predict necessarily where that vulnerability is because you know the memory layout's been randomized. I like to think of it as moving target defense for software uh, specifically, or you know, um, you know, I think Gartner calls it software memory protection. Yeah, and um, it, it's almost like from the developer's perspective, like why wouldn't you do this? Because it's completely transparent to them, right? Yeah, it, it's very easy. We like to say, uh, you know, it, it, you know, these kinds of protections in general in the industry um, should be added where it doesn't slow down developers. I think one of the issues uh, out there, you know, with kind of traditional scanning tools, for example, where we may identify vulnerabilities and, and kick things back to developers is that creates additional work for them. So to the extent you can smooth out the patching and smooth out the release cycles, you know, we naturally have a lot of uh, DevOps programs that have high velocity release schedules. If you can smooth out the complexity from a security perspective, then developers absolutely love it. Uh, but then it also then gives, for those that deploy software, it gives them the protections they need at runtime. So I think there's still, you know, kind of an issue with operators are sort of accountable for the runtime performance of software and the security protections that are going on. Uh, and developers are, you know, happy to kind of comply with different tools, but we may be overburdening developers in different ways. So having a tool that can provide the runtime protections but not slow down developers is, you know, kind of ideal in that environment. Well, the way I've been kind of articulating the ecosystem around, and I know we're sort of focusing a bit on embedded devices and OT assets, yeah. but um, it's kind of a, a new, exciting frontier of of, of these things. And um, I've been thinking about cybersecurity for OT as a kind of younger brother to IT. You know, there's differences, but history is a guide. And, you know, what we saw in the IT space was over time, um, different kinds of cybersecurity control measures came into place, right? You have firewalls, you've got intrusion detection systems, you've got endpoint uh, security products, you know, behavioral analytics type things. And I feel like uh, endpoint security is obviously a, a core, you know, very, the, the analogy is very immediate to sort of some of the things that you're, you're doing in cyber hardening on the endpoints, obviously just given an embedded device, if it's a real time operating system, I don't think you're going to run like McAfee antivirus on it or something like that. Um, but, but, but the cyber hardening is something that's super important. Um, you know, looking at the endpoint, I think obviously I would say this, but uh, intrusion detection on the data buses is something that, you know, we feel is, is really, really important. What are some of the other things you've thought about for for OT systems or embedded devices that maybe are, are other kinds of control measures we might see kind of cropping up in the ecosystem over the over the coming years? Well, one of the things we see is that there there is a desire to get feedback from devices out in the field, and you know if you think about collecting. You know, you know, in, in IT systems, we have application performance monitoring. On OT systems, 
you know, if there are unintended software crashes or weird things that happen, you know, collecting that kind of information and providing insight on it is is kind of a, you know, it, it's kind of a novel idea because, you know, in, in the past, uh, there, these weren't really connected. And now you can see the convergence of IT and OT and those networks are being connected and there's more and more, um, you know, OT-like applications that are talking to, to cloud environments and the like. And so, you know, I guess it's that convergence and it's the performance on those devices where you can see software crashes. We have, you know, customers that want to know what was happening, uh, you know, with, um, you know, a process if it crashed. And so I see that both in the IT and the OT side. And what's interesting in my mind is that OT vendors are now open to, you know, and it may not be in real time. It may be offline. It may be later. There's, there could be sort of an evolution there. But I do see that OT uh, vendors want to know and have feedback on performance out in the field. Uh, and they're more open to the ways that that data can, can, can get back to them. Now, naturally, you know, I also see sort of three layers of an OT network. I see the, the gateways and then the sensors and then the controllers. And, you know, the closer you are to like the gateway, that's more, it looks more like an IT network in general. And so I think there's some appetite for people right away in their own infrastructure to start adding protections in at those different layers, you know, not just at the controller itself, but maybe the, the gateway and the things that are communicating elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, I think because of that, there is sort of a, a step forward on security in general for OT networks that starts to mimic uh, IT. But I, my, my point ultimately is I think getting, you know, uh, good visibility on devices and what happened if something went wrong is essential, you know, um, for, for organizations, not just the operators, but the, the device manufacturers themselves. I think that's so smart. I mean, I think like observability is the one thing that as I was learning more about operation, uh, operational technology, I was, I was really surprised at how little observability there is on these like critical systems. I mean, these are like, if it's the military, these are the things that are giving it combat effectiveness. It's, if it's, if it's a business, it's, it's the revenue generating assets of the business. You know, I mean, these are, these are really, really important and it's not the operator's fault. I, I think it's just that these systems haven't been designed with observability in mind. Although I think that's changing. I mean, I'm, you see in different industries. I mean, we had an episode a while back with a couple of um, folks uh, who have, have worked around the periphery of agricultural IoT. And um, it's actually amazing how, you know, the John Deere's and the Caterpillars of the world are starting to engineer observability and telemetry into their systems. I mean, it's coming with some tenant, you know, mandatory services that maybe some of the farmers don't, 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 uh, don't like so much. But, um, I mean, I think in that, in that setting, we're seeing a lot more, um, observability and telemetry being built in. Are you seeing that in other industries as well? Well, I think there's a desire for it. And, you know, if you, the, the challenge with places like automotive and, and even, you know, various transportation related areas. So if you think of aircraft and others, is they there are compliance requirements around safety critical systems, 
obviously, uh, and safety is first. And so um, you need to, they're, they're open to it, but they're not going to, you know, shut down a process uh, as they're, they're flying an aircraft. So, you know, there is an appetite for it, but it's just not the same as you would think in an IT system where there may be a real-time, you know, kind of analysis of that. So collecting information and then analyzing that after the fact and, and using it in some of those safety-critical systems, I think, uh, is relatively new. But it's also, um, you know, very, very important. And, and it's changing because, uh, you know, naturally, I think their environment's getting more, or I guess, you know, the number of systems on these aircraft and, and on these vehicles is obviously increasing tremendously. And so that is, it gets to kind of that uh, evolution that you were talking about. But um, I think, you know, if you look at safety critical systems for cyber physical systems in general, uh, and you look at others that may not be classified under the same kind of compliance requirements, uh, the safety critical ones, you know, they do need, they do have, uh, you know, um, information, but they don't, they don't have the same kind of uh, application crash data that we've seen uh, in, in other industries thus far. And I do think that's changing. Yeah, I mean, there's such a demand for that application crash data across such a wide range of uh, of applications, especially in the. I mean, like you see how many of these frameworks exist on the IT side. Um, it just, yeah, it's it's it, there's an interesting set of challenges around OT. Uh, you know, like in, ensuring that you're not messing with anything that's already there. Sometimes the timing and things are really really important. And then also, how do you get the data off of that system? You know. Um, what are some of the other kind of unique challenges of working in cybersecurity in the OT space that uh, you don't see in the IT space? And I should mention, um, because you play in both, right? Um, you know, you're, you, you, you sort of, your cyber hardening solution works both for traditional IT environments as well as embedded systems. You probably would be uniquely suited to answer that question. Yeah, one of them, I think, is, you know, it gets to kind of the size of the processor or the, the chip the chip that's involved in general. And, you know, maybe, you know, you can often find really, uh, you know, kind of lightweight, um, you know, uh, processors and, and chips and, and the like uh, without a lot of, uh, you know, they're trying to con um, save the amount of energy that's even used. And so there's performance considerations that, uh, you know, the luxury of someone deploying something in the cloud may not have the same, you know, kind of performance constraints ultimately. And to me, that's one of them. We talked about, uh, you know, we already talked about the ability to kind of push updates or even administer updates, but it's generally the performance, you know, considerations on these devices, you know, um, oftentimes, you know, it kind of the, the old joke is, well, you could secure anything if you could put them up, you know, enough equipment on something. But some of these things can't afford to have you know, an extra ounce or an extra pound or extra five pounds, let alone 10, right? And so you need to have, you, you need to work within a very constrained environment, I think is probably one of the biggest unique things. And then, you know, in these safety critical systems, it's governed by various, uh, you know, standards that you just don't see, you know, obviously there's other compliance programs in IT, but, you know, there's safety standards that you have to meet. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, they all take security very seriously and for in, in safety critical systems, it's really about safety and security is a subset of safety. And so you have to think about safety holistically uh, and not just maximizing your, your most secure aspect, but making sure you're doing it within the constraints of the system 
uh, processing power or what have you, uh, as well as, you know, the updates, which are a challenge, as well as, you know, just the overall compliance. So that's what makes it a unique challenge. Um, and, you know, I think more of these uh, systems are being exposed to connectivity. And so, you know, I was just talking to some manufacturers recently last week, and they were talking about how their OT systems are connected to IT networks that are obviously connected to cloud environments and things like that. And so, you know, they're thinking about what does that mean from their API perspective into their OT network and, and what have you. Um, and, and what other, you know, um, uh, attack vectors are there uh, now, you know, since these systems are no longer as closed as they once were. Yeah, I think um, all of that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the other big difference that I've noticed is appetite for false positives. Um, so like on, on an IT system, you know, when we think about some control measures like, you know, uh, email scanner that says, hey, this is um, this is a potentially malicious PDF or, you know, we, we noticed this the high entropy in this thing and it, it could be like a compressed payload or something. That's pretty annoying. Like you can't download an attachment or something like that. Uh, but if you block a packet on an OT bus and uh, it's like a critical control flap for an aircraft or something like you could, you could ostensibly kill people. Like there's the, the consequences are orders of magnitude, um, more extreme. And so it's something we've thought about a lot is how do you like skew some of the cybersecurity trade-offs that we've calibrated over the years in the IT side and reevaluate those, uh, for, for an OT context. I mean, I know, a lot of the things that you've uh, you've done for cyber hardening are, are pretty deterministic. I mean, it's not you know you're you can make guarantees about the, the the permutations you're making don't change the way the software runs. Um, but have you thought about kind of extensions of of either things you're working on or in ancillary spaces that maybe involve some amount of false positive, false trade off, uh, false negative trade off, and and like what what that would mean for for the OT industry. Well, you know, just to go back to the safety critical systems, the standards there often say that you have to account for every known state. And to your point, uh, I think a cyber attack can put an OT system in some ways in an unknown state. And by definition, that's sort of a challenge to the notion of safety, um, because what the manufacturers and what the operators need to be able to show is that they have a way to account for the unknown state. Uh, or I'm sorry, for every known state. And so the way we've thought about it um, is that if you are, if you have something that says you're under attack, uh, then you can get, you can make that a known state and then give controls to the operator or to the device to know what to do if they're in that situation. And so we've thought about it from that angle to kind of think about it a little bit differently and say the unknown state is in fact a known state and you have a couple of controls on how you respond as a result of that. It could be that you just want to analyze the data later and you're not going to prevent or block anything. You have to continue with, with the, you know, the mission that you're on. Um, but maybe there's other things. And so we want to give options to our customers if they find themselves in a in a cyber state as opposed to any other traditional known state in the system, can we give them controls where they can say if 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 cyber state we're going to do X Y or Z? And that's kind of the 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 area of uh, you know I think I don't know if I would call it novel per se, but I think it is. Um, 
you know, maybe you guys have thought about stuff like this as well, but the idea of giving people, you know, controls so they can overcome an unknown state is, is one of the areas that we've explored a lot with our customers. I think that's got to be the right answer in the future is, you know, because, because ultimately those operators that are in charge of the operational technology are trained to be able to deal with, that's the whole reason they're there, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be there. It would just be an autonomous system (laughs) that no one ever needs to interact with, right? It's like you, you put these experts next to the OT and you give them the responsibility of collecting data, you know, um, uh, hopefully, hopefully it's, data they can trust. Right. Um, but you know, they're collecting data and they're making decisions about kind of, um, unusual circumstances or, or, or emergency situations. And that could be maintenance, you know, like kind of a, a maintenance type of an event where you've got a malfunction here and that puts the system into a failed state and you've got to kind of recover from that. And I like the idea of bringing, cybersecurity problems into that framework, you know, where, where the operator's like, all right, I've trained on a cyber intrusion. I know like here at this water treatment facility, that means we do X, Y, Z. We're going to, you know, we're going to shut down these safety systems until we've been able to do a remediation. And then we're going to bring everything up in this order or whatever. Um, it's certainly better than what, what we have now, which is we just by sheer luck catch stuff. Um, you know, I think of the, uh, the Oldsmar, um, Florida example, right. Which was basically some, some operator was lucky enough that he saw on the HMI that someone was moving his mouse around <laughs> and then noticed, you know, downstream that someone was dumping a bunch of lie into the, uh, into the water, you know, <laughs> we can definitely do better than that. I think. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and that just kind of emphasizes the point, you know, we all rely on those water supplies and, you know, these are, you know, nuances that we have to kind of work through as an industry. And I do think that the kind of the visibility on that data and having controls built in so people can overcome, you know, those, those unknown situations, I think is key. And, you know, if you look at ransomware attacks and and shutting down gas pipes or um, gas pipelines or, or, or water, it, it, it's fundamental to how society operates. And, And we've all become dependent on all these systems, but the digitalization of this infrastructure, you know, necessitates us to make sure we do even more from a security perspective. Maybe I think like a good way to summarize uh, some of what we've been talking about is to look at, you know, maybe something very recent in the news, like the the uh, colonial um, ransomware attack and reflect on, you know, in a totally hypothetical way, but reflect on like how would some of the security control measures we've been talking about um, have stopped or at least limited the damage of a ransomware attack insofar as we like know the details of, of this particular one. But I think you and I have seen enough ransomware attacks that we, <laughs> we can make some guesses. Um, let's, let's say, um, you know, hypothetically there was, uh, the initial access was there's some service that's running on, um, on a system and let's say it's an IT system, uh, that has a vulnerability in it. It's a buffer overflow, um, how would cyber hardening have made that task more difficult? So I think in that example, you know, obviously what some attackers like to do is they'll analyze code uh, and utilize a buffer overflow is, you know, kind of think of it like an information leak about the inner workings of the technology of the software. Uh, and with that, they can kind of recreate and stitch together a lot of the different functions that, um, you know, and, and they know exactly what's going to happen and they can find the location in which they happen. And if there's a vulnerability, uh, you know, in there, then they can build an exploit to take advantage of that vulnerability. They could 
you know, maybe even introduce their own function that does something uh, in lieu of the one that was there and ready to process, or or they introduce other kind of arbitrary code that does something nefarious. Uh, they may introduce something that uh, you know kind of holds you know that that code ransom, if you will. Um, and so the idea of having an information leak or you know uh, be able to create an exploit based on the inner workings of that software is in fact giving the the attacker the blueprint for how to take control of it. Uh, so, you know, in various forms, you know, you could obviously lock down different kinds of functions that you don't use or the like, uh, you know, in, in some cases. But, you know, if you are doing things like binary randomization, then, uh, you know, that blueprint is unique to every single uh, instance or device that's out there. And so you can't recreate the memory layout just by finding you know, a small bit of information from an information leak and assume, you know, how, you know, how the rest of the, the software works. And so by, by eliminating the ability to have determinism or predictability from the attacker's perspective, their exploit fails. They can't find the function to begin with. And unlike, you know, you know, other techniques, they can't recreate the entire memory layout, uh, you know, in a reliable way uh, and have their, malicious code, uh, you know, do what it wants to do to compromise that system. So in the end, you know, I think, you know, adding randomization to the memory layout is one technique in which you can prevent exploits from even working in the, in, in the first place. Yeah. So, I mean, I think cyber hardening would have made the job of, um, getting initial access much more difficult and potentially even like you know, a big part of ransomware is being able to go from the initial infected machine to other machines on the network. There are various ways to do that. One of them is, you know, continuing to exploit vulnerable conditions on on network on, on networked machines down the road. Another kind of interesting observability um, challenge that you illuminated is that that could potentially detect a ransomware attack that's underway is the idea that. Some a lot of ransomware just indiscriminately locks files up, right? I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's a Word document or or a text file or or critical files on the file system for processes to run. And so oftentimes the reason that ransomware is so devastating to operational technology is not so much that, you know, some financial files got locked up and now we we don't have a budget or something. Um uh, which probably some of my executives would would like. Um, uh, the, the 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 problem is that the the files that are critical to running some of the the software on that system uh, isn't available, and now the the software can't run, so it crashes. And so um, one of the other interesting things about observability is is that you would be able to sort of see this attack underway and say, wait, why are all these processes crashing? And sort of you know in, in, enable an instant response rather than you know you you see that literal downstream effects of your OT not working. You're like, why the heck is this thing shut down? And it's like, oh, well, all the controllers are <laughs> unable to do their jobs because there's 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 no um, there's no files underpinning the processes. It's a great point. So if there is a crash like that, you know, then that can be an indicator of some kind of instability or unreliability, or in this case, kind of ransom, you know, locking those files leading to a ransomware, you know, kind of, you know, situation ultimately. So I agree wholeheartedly, you know, it's, it's really, you know, a lot of times it's the, the little indicators that add up to the, the entire event and an attack isn't just one event, but it's, you know, to your point, it's a series of steps. Um, and, you know, I think it, I think I read somewhere that over 70% of cyber attacks at some point 
is going after a memory-based vulnerability in that overall kill chain from the attacker's perspective. And so, you know, to the extent you can disrupt that and, you know, you know, maybe that, maybe that alone is enough to push an attacker somewhere else. Um, but, you know, with a lot of these nation states, they spend a lot of time, you know, months, if not years, and, you know, in countless hours uh, in between. Um, and so they do a lot of careful work to make sure that their exploit then ultimately works. And so if you can add a little bit of disruption into that overall equation so that they can't be 100% guaranteed their exploit's even going to work, then that alone can be a deterrence as well. So I like the idea of sort of monitoring for crashes that are indicators and also sort of the macro level view that just one disruption can, you know, cause a serious setback and hopefully, you know, maybe even serve as a deterrence ultimately. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's these concepts of like defense in depth that keep coming back over and over and over again, you know, and the other one I, I really like is, um, you know, from the army days is like an obstacle isn't useful unless someone's watching it. Right? <laughs> Cause if you give the attacker infinite tries, they're going to, they're going to figure it out eventually. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the combination of cyber hardening and observability is a really powerful combination to take the bar basically from the floor up to a, a level where it really makes it so that the attacker is going to want to try to find some other way or some other door to j- jiggle to try to, <laughs> you know, figure out a way. Yeah. In. And I'm reminded of, um, you know, when you say defense in depth and, and even the obstacle uh, course kind of analogy there, uh, if you ever tour um, castles in, uh, I don't know, Ireland or really anywhere in Europe, you know, and you think of the defenses that are all built in all around those castles, obviously the moat and, you know, um, and then you got the, the, the slots and you got the tower and you got everything to, but even if you go in and you go in the staircases, you know, they go left to right instead of right to left. And that's, you know... <laughs> A lot of people are right-handed, so they're suddenly having to go upstairs using, you know, fighting with their left hands as the lead arm. But then the steps themselves are different heights. And and if if you go up and down those steps, you know, every day for five years or whatever, you know, you know, you know how those steps are situated most of the time. But the attacker who gains entry to your castle doesn't know, and you know that that'll trip them up, and they might slide down, and that that little trip might give you the advantage to defend your castle in that regard. And so a lot of little techniques like that, I think are, um, you know, good analogies for cybersecurity in general. Yeah. I love it. Um, I love it. We're actually, um, uh, I think you can draw so many powerful analogies from like things that seem completely out of context, you know, but, um, we're, we're going to have, uh, another podcast with, um, uh, this guy, Ben uh, McCarty, who wrote a book, um, Cyber Jitsu, which is about applying the samurai code to uh, to to cybersecurity. And, um, it, you know, it seems like kind of a fun topic, but then you realize like, oh, my gosh, actually, there's like there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> awesome. Um, well, I guess I'll just wrap up by saying, uh, Joe, thank you so much for for coming on the show. I, I think this is great. Uh, there aren't. Uh, a ton of people working in this uh, in this operational technology cybersecurity space. So it's it's always awesome to have the experts on here to give different perspectives on this kind of new frontier. Um, where can people find out about you and RunSafe? Well, they obviously can find us, uh, you know, at runsafesecurity.com, uh, and you know you can find us, uh, you know, in you know LinkedIn and 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 all the social channels as well. Uh, if anyone wants to tweet, uh, you know, my way, it's. Uh, at Joe Hawk one zero one zero one on Twitter. So happy to engage at your your preference. But 
uh, www.runsafesecurity.com is, is a great option. Awesome. Well, Joe, thank you so much. I know I'll be joining you on uh, on your podcast at some point here pretty shortly. Um, looking forward to that. But uh, please, you know, come back anytime. It was great you to have it. you. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.